You're listening to Scottish Independence Podcast, brought to you by the IndieLive Podcasters. In February, IndieLive Media launched a new programme it's called Rising Clyde, and you're about to listen to the first episode of the series. Rising Clyde is a programme aiming to develop the debate around climate justice in Scotland. It goes out on the first Monday of each month, and it's hosted by Ian Bruce. And Ian will be talking to activists and experts about the key issues facing the climate movement in Scotland. His first episode is called After COP26, What Now for Scotland? And in this opening programme, Ian and his guests begin to map out some of the movement's main challenges ahead. Hello and welcome to Independence Live. I'm Ian Bruce in Glasgow and this is Rising Clyde, the programme where we'll be talking about the key issues and the big challenges facing the struggle for climate justice here in Scotland and around the world. In this first episode, we want to get an overview of where the movement's at in Scotland now, four months after those huge demonstrations in Glasgow and the whole build-up to COP26, which you saw a little bit of in that video at the start. In order to do that, we're joined, I'm very happy that we're joined by three activists who've been central to the movement before, during and now since COP26. First, Anna Brown is a leading member of Fridays for Future here in Glasgow. Fridays for Future, the organisation that organised and came out of the school strikes uh, initiated by Greta Thunberg. And I believe you have another one coming up later this month. Uh, and I'm sure you'll tell us about that later. Uh, also, Megan Rose is an organiser with Stop Cambo. Stop Cambo, that's the campaign to put an end to the uh, new oil field that was planned off Shetland. Of course, the fact that Shell pulled out of that uh, project shortly after COP uh, and uh, the remaining company, Sikar Point Energy, has had to shelve the project for the moment is one of the big victories we've had since COP26. So I guess. We can blame you a little bit for that uh, victory, Megan. Anyway, um, and last but not least, Stephen Smiley is uh, a member of the leadership of Unison, the Public Service Workers' Union, the biggest union in Britain. And Stephen's been central, played a central role in building those bridges between the trade union movement and the climate justice movement, which bore fruit here in Glasgow in November. And that's work that's continuing through the trade union caucus of the coalition. So thank you very much indeed to all of you for being with us. I want to start by asking each of you to say very briefly what you think key priority for the movement is in the period ahead. Um, Anna, do you want to go first? I think right now one of our key focuses is looking beyond COP, is really getting more people engaged within the movement at COP. We saw how many people can turn out and are engaged, and now it's really doing that outreach um, to get more people involved, especially in the run-up for us to our next global strike, and then also the council elections in May. Council elections, that's an interesting one. I think we should talk about that at some point too. Megan, what about you? I think that one of our main priorities at the moment is maintaining that interconnectedness that we gained through COP. I think a lot of the achievements we've made in Stop Cambo has been within such a, a wonderful coalition of different organisations taking part. And if we can keep that level of interconnectedness going forwards, we're going to achieve a lot more. Thank you so much. And Stephen? 
Yeah, pretty much the same. We need to keep the movement uh, going. There's a real danger that with everything else that's going on, that people lose sight of what we were arguing and, and, and winning the arguments about last year. So, yeah, we need to keep building that movement, make it broader, make it, make it deeper, um, and get more of our organisations involved in searching out the solutions. Because we had a lot of talk last year, as we know, a lot of blah, blah, blah. Um, we now need to really get the actions going on ahead of COP27. I mean, I've heard this said at almost everything I've, I've, I've attended since COP26, this need to try and hold the movement together and build on that <clears> momentum. <throat> do, you, do, you, do you, any of you feel there's been a loss of momentum, that things have drifted apart a bit? We'll come back to this more in more detail, but just initially, I wonder if you think that that is a problem. I think that's always a problem when we march people up to the top of a hill of a big event like, like COP. That pe Some people will think, well, that's great, that, the demonstration was wonderful, really enjoyed that, that's fantastic. But it's coming up to Christmas now or, you know, going back to you know, this and that and the other. And, of course, with the, the cost of living crisis and uh, uh, the war, then obviously, which we'll talk about, no doubt. Yeah, there is a real danger of that. And I think people have um, some, some of the some of the organisations which committed a lot, some of the individuals committed a lot, were a bit tired, <laughs> it has to be said, after after COP and took a, took a break. But I think that I think the structure of that movement is still there. Um, and, and, and I'm not I'm, I'm not worried about that. We will we will be back there. We will mobilise again. Yeah, I think the kind of want within organisations and everyone who's involved in COP to keep working together and keep that momentum going is really there. It's just kind of the capacity and people keeping going after such a big event, but everyone really does want to keep that going. So it's just kind of how we make that happen and with everything else that is happening now. Stephen, you, you actually mentioned exactly what I was going to ask you about next, which is, you know, there have been two really major events, very yeah. apparently very different kind of events in the last month or so, which seem to have changed the situation when we're operating in. You know, the first, of course, was that, you know, was the cost of living crisis, the announcement that, you know, the, the massive increase in gas prices, especially, um, uh, and, and the way that's going to hit people, especially from next month. Um, and the second, even more recently, uh, of course, war in Ukraine. I'm just wondering to what extent you think that's changed the terrain. Either of, either or both of those things have changed the terrain. I mean, this morning, just as a small example, obviously both of those issues are connected with gas and energy and transition and all those issues. Just this morning on the Today programme, I heard a fund manager arguing that it was obvious now with the war in Ukraine that we had to reverse the, what he called the hostile environment established around development of North Sea oil and gas uh, in order to replace the gas that we were going to, we ought to stop taking from Russia, you know. So, I, I mean, I don't know, Megan, maybe you could kick us off on this one. Do you feel that the kind of terms of the argument have changed in one direction or the other? I think what we're definitely seeing is a change in how we're messaging it. The actual aims aren't changing at all because a large part of our issue is our reliance on gas and our reliance on oil that exists um, as it currently stands. Um, changing to using mostly North Sea oil isn't really going to make that much of a difference in the long term to the cost of living crisis, definitely, um, and to the ongoing war in Ukraine. The end goal should be moving away from gas because that gives us far more stability trying to invest more in North Sea oil and North Sea oil gas because that's still, the prices are still excited by global markets. Um, so it's not going to help with the, the cost of living crisis. And a dependence on gas is still going to have a lot of volatility, no matter which direction we're going in there. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems such an obvious argument, doesn't it? I mean, both of those things you would think it would be ABC that just reinforces what we've been saying all along. And yet people, you know, some people, you know, especially on, the, on you know, sections of the right, essentially, are using it to argue exactly the opposite. I don't know. Any other comments on this? They know they're on the back foot. They're going to use any opportunity they can at this point. So they're using it as an opportunity, but it, it, there really isn't one. There's nothing for them to stand on here. Yeah, I, I would agree with that in principle. But you're right. The, there are there are people who will argue that the reliance on Russian gas can, can only be dealt with by using more of our own North Sea oil gas. And for those people who have a vested interest in that, the companies who, the BPs and Shells who have made vast amounts of profits out of the cost of living crisis, they will see that as yeah, okay, let us go ahead with that. And, and within the trade union movement, there's a debate and a discussion, which has always been there about how do we protect jobs. And this, you know, this gives a, 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 a sense that, well, that would be one way of doing it. But even if Campbell was to go ahead, it would be a number of years before anything would be flown out of Campbell. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't help to solve the cost of living crisis just now. But the answer to the over-reliance on gas, whether it's North Sea gas or Russian gas, is to have more renewable energy. So we don't use gas at all. Um, that's the answer. So it doesn't change the terrain of our arguments at all. It slightly shifts some of the arguments our opponents, if you like, would, would, would use. They'll use that. They'll use anything, now, whether it's war in Ukraine or whether it's the, the, the cost of living. They'll, they'll use that to put forward their arguments for, oh, we should just continue using fossil fuels because it'll be more secure and the rest of it. It won't be. It won't be because it's not secure. That's the whole point about climate change um, that we understand. And the future is not secure whilst we keep burning fossil fuels. So we need to grasp that network and resist the temptation and resist the siren calls from the, the big profiteers uh, who are making money out of our crisis um, and focus on the target, which is the, to reduce and eventually re remove uh, fossil fuels from our energy mix. I mean, I'm sure we'd all agree with that. I'm just wondering, are we winning the argument? You know, it, it, have these new... Will, can that, is it, tilting the argument in the favour, in favour of the climate justice argument? Or do you think people will listen to those other, you know, in our view, distorted interpretations of what, what this means? Uh, my own view is that my own view is it'll be a difficult argument. There's no, no getting away from it. There'll be a debate. Um, the, 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 some of the right-wing media uh, will be very clearly on the side of you continue to use fossil fuels. Um, so we need to take, take it on. It's not something we can just assume we won the argument last year, therefore we'll win it this, this year as well. We need to keep those, those arguments going. I mean, the, one, I mean it's, it does strike me that everybody's talking about sanctions. We've been lobbying our pension funds, for example, to divest from fossil fuels and, well, you can't do that, and that would be, you know, terrible. Then days of, of Russia invading Ukraine, pension funds in Scotland were talking about how they can divest from Russia and Russian investments. So they can do it when, when there's a need to. And the reliance that Germany has on, on, on fossil fuels from Russia can't be replaced by pumping in oil or gas from anywhere else. They need to step up their renewable energy uh, industry so that they can, you know, Eventually, you know, if they want to take sanctions against Russia and stop the gas flowing, fine. But they need to have that replacement, and that replacement has to be renewable. Megan, how do you feel the kind of momentum is around the Stop Cambo movement and the, you know, the continuation of that? We've still got a lot of moment, uh, sorry, momentum. Um, so obviously we have had a, a big win with Stop Cambo, and that brought in a lot more people. And we're now in a moment of re-strategizing. So we're looking at what our next targets are going to be and how we're going to approach that. We've nearly finalized that, but we have a lot of people that are really 
interest in getting involved now at this stage, now that they've seen the success of the campaign so far and how we can go forward and do this, use this approach to hopefully more fields, but also more importantly, to target the UK government and their own policy. Um, and we're also putting a really big focus on uh, working more with uh, workers in the industry and looking at just transition and how we can help them the most as well. I mean, I, I wanted to move on to the lessons, and I think that's a good point to do it. I mean, have you, I mean, you say you're re-strategizing after that victory. What, I mean, what are the lessons to be drawn from that victory? I mean, I know, I don't think, I know, you, you know, we shouldn't be too presumptive because, you know, things could be reversed, but, um, but you know, it's, it's, it certainly is a partial and temporary victory at the very least, you know, an important one, you know. How, I mean, I don't know if it's possible to kind of sum up in a nutshell, you know, how was that victory brought about and what can the rest of the movement draw as a lesson from that, do you think? Is, it, is that easy to do? I can try. Um, I think there's, a, there's probably a lot of reasons why the Stop Campbell campaign was successful, but one of them is uh, we had a really massive diversity of tactics and a really large number of people that were involved. So we had a lot of capacity, but also a lot of different tactics that we could try and target different parts. So we weren't just looking at attacking the government, we were also looking at the uh, organization involved, such so as Shell and Sicker Point. Um, and then, yes, yeah, a mix of different targets and then different ways of targeting them as well. And we had involvement in campaigns across the UK. And we even had solidarity from organizations across the world as well. The lessons learned is mostly use everything you've got. Don't hold back if you're trying to stop something as big as an oil field. It's, it's a big task, but if you use everything, you've got a really good chance. Anna, did you, Anna or, or, or Stephen, what, did you draw any lessons from the, from the Stop Cambo experience? I think for us it was partly just like interconnectedness of it also all the groups working together and the diversity of tactic of methods like as Mum said it's not just the one person you need to aim at kind of in any of these situations it is really a people in any kind of magnitude of things so Campbell etc and I think that was kind of one of the things a lot of people really kind of admired about the campaign and looked at was really how it aimed at everything. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I, I think the Campbell, Stop Campbell campaign was a magnificent example of imaginative and creative activities, but it was also tapped into the mood of the, or at the time where everyone was, you know, working towards COP. We were building a big movement um, where everyone was talking about it. And the sense of uh, the argument was just won over by everyone. And, and of course, it became the stage that nobody supported Campbell except the governments who were last to, to, to blink, if you like, and then, of course, Shell, Shell blinked before even the governments uh, blinked. So I think that there's a combination of that kind of, of um, the tactics, also just the broad base of, of the support for the arguments in, in total, and it was, a, it was a terrific, not a complete victory, because it still was, <laughs> it could turn back, but, um, I mean, it was a great achievement. It was something that really lift, lifted us after, after COP, after that period when you're exhausted and but suddenly you get this really good news and it was great. great. I mean, one, one thing that I had a question mark about, I think, was, I mean, the, the Stop Cambo campaign was obviously very visible all around COP. You know, it was one of the most visible slogans on the streets and so forth. Yeah. And just after COP, the First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, apparently changed her position on Cambo. Yeah. And, um, you know, literally days, I think the, about four days after COP, it was something like that. And then I think a week after that, Shell decided that it wasn't going to be economically viable or something, you know. I wonder if that sequence of events is an accident or to what it, you know, what it says about the combination between 
power on the streets, demonstrations on the streets, government, government policy, and you know the the, the polluters and the, the business interests. You know, I don't know. Does it? Does can we draw any conclusions about that, or is it a is it a is it a kind of a coincidence? You know. Well, I was just going to say, I think politicians are influenced by two things. One is um, what their um, constituency um, is saying. And I think it was quite clear mm. in the run-up to, to November and during November that Scottish people of all parties um, you know, were committed to that ideal about what COP was about, or should have been about. We know it wasn't, but what it should have been about. What it's selling on the streets. And the mobilisations, not just on the big demonstration on the Saturday, but all the way through that convinced politicians that they needed to be seen to be on the right right side. But it's true that politicians like to be on the winning side as well. And and, and I don't know if Nicola got uh, forewarned about Shell's decision and therefore decided he needs to move before Shell moved first. I don't know. But, the, you know, those, I think, one of the things, one of the lessons to take out is we can actually influence politicians to, to do the right thing. And uh, that's one of the, th we can mark that down as one of the achievements that we persuaded the First Minister of Scotland, who, in a country which the whole uh, independence movement was based upon our oil and all that, for many, many years, suddenly that First Minister turned against that on the back of the pressure that she must have felt from Megan and her colleagues in the campaign and the general mood that was, was created. So, yeah, I think Megan and the colleagues should be extremely proud of having turned that around. You remind me of one of the slogans on the, I think it was on the independence block on the March on the 6th, which I really liked you. It was like, it's Scotland's oil, leave it in the soil. In the you know? <laughs> Megan, you were going to, you were going to say something there. Thanks, Stephen, by the way. We're, I, I mean, I am very proud of the entire movement. They've done so much. The Stop campaign has been such a wonderful thing to be a part of. In reference to whether it was a coincidence, all those things happening, uh, just one after the other, I don't think it was at all. I mean, we managed to get Stop Campbell messaging out from the first event of, of COP all the way through, it was being broadcast to global stages, to all these world leaders, from UK activists mostly, that we were really unhappy about this happening. And I think Nicola Sturgeon being in that mix, seeing that being broadcast quite a lot, would definitely have had a massive yeah. influence on our own decision. I mean, even so we had Fridays for Future activists made a statement about Stop Cambo at the, the conference for youth just before COP started as well. Uh, so we had involvement from people from lots of different organisations that were, were putting Stop Cambo messaging at the heart of COP. And so we weren't surprised, that surprised to see Nicola Sturgeon's statement, but we were very, very proud of it. It was a really, really massive turning point. Shell's one did catch us by surprise, but I think given the, the sequence of events that preceded it, it does make sense and it wasn't so much of a coincidence as, yeah, it would have made sense for them to make that strategically from a business point of view. Great. I'm just going to make a quick apology to our audience at home here now, because I'm seeing there's a whole load of questions in the, in the chat here. Getting, just getting my head around how to operate this StreamYard system that we're using and I actually can't read them and, and sort of keep up the conversation at the same time. So but that's, 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 I'll try and um, dip through them in a moment. But um, I wonder what other lessons there are that we should be drawing from. I mean, you know, I was amazed by November, you know. Um, you know, a lot of us had been involved with a movement in the coalition and so on and so forth for a year or more before that. Um, and although people talked about 100,000 as a target, you know, to be honest, I never believed that was we were going to get even halfway there, you know. And when it was at least 100,000, some people say 150,000, then all the rest of the stuff going on, you know, it was just mind-blowing, really, you know. But I just wonder what lessons we need to draw from that, you know. I mean, it just seems to be like, there seems to be such a horrible danger of it kind of like just slipping into history, you know. 
So I, I, I don't know, what, what other lessons do you think we could, I mean, I think the Cambo stuff is, is a, certainly an, an important one. I mean, what about Fridays for Future? Because, you know, people were talking about Fridays for Future. I mean, the Fridays for demonstration on the Friday in November was also amazing. And mm. people have been saying, oh, the school strikes, they kind of lost momentum and this, that and the other. You know, I mean, how do you, what, what, what lessons are you drawing in Fridays for Future, Anna? I think for us, it was similar to Stop Campbell. It really was the power of everyone working together and what bringing everyone together really does. And what we've been talking about a lot is really coming back to the stories. One of the most powerful thing about the demonstrations at COP was you had the people in Glasgow who could tell the stories from all over the world and who were facing the crisis in ways people in Glasgow and around Scotland hadn't really seen before. So we've been talking a lot about the power of stories and not just the science and really like the connecting to people a lot more kind of in links to the cost of living crisis and really just that working together and how when you really do put the work in it does work obviously there's a level of a well it was cop there was going to be more going on than there would for normal demonstrations kind of thing um, but it really was that everyone working together and I think that's kind of something everyone took from it and something people have really try to keep going. One of the things we've really been building on is our links with trade unions. We've been working with STUC and everyone, um, WIFOs a lot more, um, to try and keep all of that going. Certainly two of the things I, I felt were so strong were, were that exactly the, the Global South present and those presence in Glasgow and all those links, you know, the, the kind of the way you felt those things were connecting throughout the, the, the two weeks, you know, at so many different levels, you know. And which was also a bit of a surprise for me, the, the degree of trade union involvement, you know, which I don't think had really happened before in the climate movement. So how are we going to build on those two things? Can, can I just say, the other thing which, the other lesson that's really strong, as well as the, the fact that we can build a broad movement, international movement, which is continuing, this issue about young people, my, my uh, 10-year-old um, grandson, Oliver, uh, who lives down in the south, south of England, he was watching all the stuff on the news and, and, and stuff online. And when, he, when his mum contacted me after the, the Friday demonstration, Oliver wants you to know if I'd, if I'd met Greta. Because he was, and, and I didn't. But I got quite clo got close enough to take a good photograph of her. And he was really pleased, therefore, to get to get that. So that's that's 10-year-old kids who are, are linking into this. It's not just the school students like Anna and, and who, you know, taking foreign strikes. Young people are now clued into this. Young people, and it's their future. And I do, I do think that we can't fail to win if we have the future on our on our side. And I, and I just, I am just really encouraged by that. And the number of young people who were on both demonstrations, some in their school uniforms, some of their teachers, some of their parents, some of their grandparents, some of them free from running away from them and free from just <laughs> a hell of a time already. It was it was magnificent, and we have the future on our side. Not only on our side, but in our in our ranks marching with us. That's that's we can win. Therefore, yeah, that's definitely something we found as well with COP. We'd had back at um, September twentieth and twenty nineteen. You'd have things like had school classes coming as classes from school to the Friday strikes, and mm -hmm. you'd have kids set up for corners at the strikes so they could participate in different ways. And it's just really amazing that you see really the kind of wide variety of people who participate in these things let's try and sort of round it up a bit with a bit a bit more on like the what next stuff you know i mean for me the main lessons that we got were just 
similar to the interconnectedness working with global networks so we started doing a lot of solidarity work with groups um, worldwide so given that stop campbell was doing quite well as campaign and still is using the, our following and our networks to help some campaigns like aacop east african crude oil pipeline we've been doing some work with, with networks in, in other countries and other continents to try and make sure that any any following and any movement uh, growth that we have we can also lend that to others in other places and show solidarity with them how, how is, is that a difficult sell for, I'm just, obviously there are some countries, I mean, just recent examples that I, I can remember off the top of my head, like Guyana uh, in South America, um, Namibia in, in Southern Africa, who have recently or relatively recently think they've discovered vast amounts of oil, are thinking this is going to sort of lift them out of poverty. Um, you know, to, is, this a, is this a difficult argument? To, to make, you know, with people who suddenly see fossil fuels as, as, as a salvation, you know? I think it can be a difficult one in some situations, but in the long term, using other resources, natural ones, and going for renewable resources is going to be far more beneficial to any country who's um, yeah, looking to get more energy and, and make a profit through that. I mean, every single country that's looking at fossil fuel um, extraction now has a good number of activists that are also looking at fighting against it because they're aware that there are better ways of trying to source your energy and trying to generate profit and it's mostly working with those activists so that they have the, the resources to communicate with their own countries and showing solidarity with the work that they're doing it's not necessarily something that i as a scottish campbell activist example i'm going to be trying to sell um it's something there are already activists on the ground that are aware of better of alternatives that they can use and it's just totally. showing solidarity to them and their work just very quickly, Stephen, so looking ahead towards, I know you've been doing a lot of thinking about COP27. We're gonna, and we're gonna go into a lot of these issues more in more detail in future programs, but just, you know, what's the international perspective for the movement from Scotland, do you think, over the next few months? Well, I think, I think people, the next COP, COP27 is gonna be in Africa, it's gonna be in Egypt. So the African people, the trade unions in Africa, the civil society in Africa, they need to be, they need to lead, and our job is to give them solidarity and support them. And we in the trade union caucus have had meetings with the colleagues in Africa, uh, thinking about how, how we can support, support them. But they are looking to us in terms of lessons we learned and how we did what we did. And I think there's a lot we can contribute to that. Climate change won't, be one in Scotland, it wouldn't be one in Egypt either, it'll be one internationally. And we in the developed countries um, need to build those alliances and, and, and genuine solidarity. And it's not about telling them, well, you can't use that oil, it's about supporting them to understand how they can move forward uh, in the future and, and support their demands. Because one of the big demands in the discussions in COP was about loss, loss and damage. The amount of damage which has been done in the, the developing world already by our use of fossil fuels. And then some people are denying them the right, as they see it, to, to have the same levels of prosperity. So we need to work with them to achieve their demands about the funding, the hundred billion a year that they were promised, still haven't got, to allow them to mitigate to the damage they're already suffering. So there's a real need for us to step up our international work and what we did, what we all achieved, young people, the Campbell campaign, the trade unions did last year, was really established for the first time, I think, in all the COPs, a proper and genuine international coalition to take these things forward. And that's, that's a huge thing. And therefore, we need to take that forward. And just as we're all saying at the outset, it's about taking forward our movement on an international basis. And doing that, we, we can um, support our colleagues in Africa. We will be the leaders uh, in the next uh, six, 11 months up to COP. 
Thanks very much. I'm afraid we're going to have to close it down there because uh, we have come to the end of our time. But um, yeah, with that thought and the thought you just gave us before of the future within our ranks, it's a hopeful message, I think. So uh, yeah, and we'll come back to many of these issues. Thank you so much to all of you for kicking off this uh, first episode of uh, Rising Clyde. Uh, and uh, we look forward to seeing you all again very soon. Thank you very much. You're listening to Scottish Independence Podcasts brought to you by the Indie Live Podcasters. That was episode one of Rising Cloud. The second episode will be focusing on war and the cost of living. You can find the video versions of Rising Cloud on Independence Live YouTube channel. Or if you like listening to podcasts when you're out and about, tune in to Scottish Independence Podcasts on Podbean, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you listen to your podcasts. We hope you enjoyed it and thanks for listening.